1: Expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24/7 support community, created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt. Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com/thrive. That's eckfeld slash thrive Welcome, everyone. This is Scaling Up Services. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. Our guest today is Nelson Tepfer, and he is Regional Director for the Greater New York Area For the CFO Center, we're going to find out a little bit more about their business. We're going to talk to Nelson about what service companies typically get right and get wrong when they think about their finances and think about strategy. I'm excited for this. I think finances are often a a very overlooked element to scaling businesses in general, and particularly service-based businesses. Understanding how money flows, understanding how profitability works, understanding how to be strategic around looking at your finances and setting up your books, learning about your business through money is great. So, with that, Nelson welcome to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. So why don't we talk uh, a little bit about your background first and then we can talk about the CFO Center and then we'll talk a little bit about what you've learned being an advisor to businesses and what you've learned about service based businesses. So what is your background? How did you get into the work that you're doing now?
0: So I was the CFO of a company for about 11 years when a friend of mine reached out to me and said, a friend of his is having some trouble with his company, can I have a conversation and maybe see if I can help? So I figured, no problem. I'll help out a friend of a friend. I'll have that conversation. And that conversation turned into a year-long interim CFO role. And what I learned by doing that was that the skills which I had in my regular corporate role is so much more impactful to these small and middle-sized businesses. It's so much more engaging for me to work. At. I learned entirely new business and new industry, and now I'm able to bring all the skills that I had had in my previous role to have a real impact on a company like this. So I started doing more work like that for the next about six and a half years, working across eight or nine different industries, um, helping clients, helping businesses grow to help helping them achieve their goals, taking the skills that I had in my previous role to this level. And then I wanted to take what I was doing to the next level. So I joined the CFO Center as a second member of their New York New York team. I took over the team about a year later and we're now up to all CFOs in the region.
1: So you've managed the team of CFOs. CFO service providers in the New York, greater New York area. Uh, so it's kind of like you have a business within a business here. What And just talk to us a little bit about what the services are in terms of what you do, what you don't do, why, why you've kind of chosen that particular suite of services to provide to the market.
0: Sure. So we provide part-time CFO services to companies that don't need, don't want, or cannot afford a full-time CFO. In almost a decade of doing just this type of work, it's almost always don't need. Most companies simply do not need a full-time CFO sitting on their payroll in their office for the most part. They need that level of experience and expertise to help guide them to call on as a resource, but they don't need that person sitting there full-time. Here in the New York region, a full-time experienced CFO is very expensive. Yeah, yeah. And making sure, you see, you want to have that resource available when you need it, but you don't necessarily need them there full-time. And we stick to that CFO role. We don't do the company's books. We're not the company's accountant. We stick to that CFO role and helping guide them on their strategic growth from their financial perspective.
1: Yeah. And maybe for the audience, let's just talk through the different roles here because I, people talk about bookkeepers, people talk about controllers, people talk about accountants, people talk about CFOs. Just tell us a little bit about what those different roles mean, why and when you need those different roles, and then how the CFO role is really different from all of those and how that kind of ties more into strategy and, and and overall business management and business planning versus, you know, just kind of entering checks and reconciling accounts.
0: Absolutely. So you know, usually the first hire in this type of space is an accountant or a bookkeeper. We'll start with the bookkeeper side for the moment because that's internal. That first bookkeeper role is obviously supposed to just make sure everything is recorded, that everything in the business has to be recorded somewhere. And uh, this is a very crucial one, which we've often seen is one which is kind of abused. A position in the company. <laughs>
1: <laughs> not, not physically abused. <laughs>
0: no, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I the role of the bookkeeper is, is coming
1: to you, you with you bruised and
0: battered. Yeah, no. <laughs> You ask them to do too much without the proper guidance, very often because the business owner doesn't have the guidance to give them. Yeah. So that bookkeeper is asked to do quite a bit. And when we very often come in, we'll see things which are just done wrong at the bookkeeper level, through their fault or, or not. It's just yeah. certain things are done incorrectly when it comes to recording certain aspects.
1: Any, anything that's come up for you? I mean, I'm just kind of curious what things you've seen in terms of you know, just um, fundamental mistakes, or, 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 or things that end up hurting a business later if they don't get right in the beginning.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, properly recording uh, obligations, breaking it down between interest and principal, or, or interest and principle, so little tiny things like that. Yeah. We worked with one company where, this was a little bit more extreme, obviously, where they just simply stopped doing bank rents before I, about six months before I started talking to them, yeah. because their bookkeeper did not know how to enter into their system the Amazon Reserve, where to record that. Uh, so they just stopped those bank breaks about six months before I got there.
1: Yeah, that's not good. And she,
0: and she didn't have anyone she could turn to from guidance. The business owner, he's you a know, programmer engineer type background, yeah. he doesn't know about the account type of thing. So yeah. just, uh, there are a lot of things like that where just making sure that knowledge flow is there. Yeah. someone that they can go to where they, actually, where they have questions that they can actually get answers to do. Because very often, if they don't know where to go, they are either do something wrong or just won't do
1: it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's bookkeeper. That's just keeping the records, uh, making sure that you have entries for everything that's happening in the company from a financial point of view. Uh, talk to us a little bit about then how accountant... How, I'm kind of curious how a bookkeeper typically works with an accountant, um, why your accountant is not your bookkeeper, and why your bookkeeper is not your accountant. Talk to me about that a little bit.
0: Sure. So your accountant, most businesses, when they start to have some type of accountant. It's usually somebody they know or someone that gets referred to them. Uh, that person obviously is there to make sure their taxes are filed correctly for the most part. When you're first starting out, that's usually the first role of that accountant. Now, one thing, one challenge we very often see business owners take is they'll give their accountant certain directives, but their accountant will just take their directives and try and make it fit instead of actually being proactive mm. in guiding that business owner where they should go when it comes to a tax strategy perspective. Yeah. That when well, we work with a company, for instance, where their business owner young, In experience when it comes to business, he built a very successful business very, very quickly. But he told his accountant that he doesn't want to pay that much taxes. Well, no one really does, obviously. (laughs) But what the accountant didn't tell the business owner is that there are ramifications if your returns are always showing you're not really making all that much money. Yeah. As in, he couldn't get a real line of credit from a bank, as in that caused cash flow issues later on. So, yeah. you know, making sure that accountant is your true business partner and someone you can actually work with is really, really important. Making sure you have the right value for that professional relationship. Yeah. Uh, that accountant as well is more on the tax planning side. Obviously, you want to pay less taxes, but there are ways to do it that still paints the pretty picture for your company.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I've seen that happen as well. Like, you go, you've, you've had great, five great years of not paying a whole lot of taxes, but then you go to get a line of credit or, or you go to add a transaction. like, you, you have an opportunity to sell the company and someone looks at the books and says, well, why I shouldn't pay a whole lot for this thing because it's not making money. And you're like, well, no, but it really is making money. Trust me. Yeah. And I yeah. this game of what's
0: the value of the business. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So the right professional really helps guide that because we have ones where it's just simply not the right working relationship we see where you know they're not, they're not consulting their accountants on, on equipment purchases yeah. you know when, when we work with a client where i asked him you know he's asking about an equipment purchase and i asked him if he spoke to his accountant and he tells me why should i speak to my account it's not time for me to file yeah so i said okay great you know let's call your accountant then let's find you a new one and he saved i think it was 30 or forty thousand dollars just by buying in december instead of january
1: yeah exactly yeah putting it depending on which year you put it into and, and what the tax liability is yeah. yeah. yeah, And so then talk to me about controller because I think this comes up a lot. How how does a controller work? What is that function and how does it fit with some of these other ones?
0: Sure. So, you know, the, the, the controller differentiating from a bookkeeper, the bookkeeper is more what I'll, we refer to as, you know, there are three layers in your finance function here's your support function, your operational, and then your strategic. The bookkeeper and the accountant play more in the support function. Okay. They're there just to make sure things are recorded, things are filed. You know, you have some strategy obviously on the accountant side. The controller's role is really moves more into the operation. And that's where how processes actually work within an organization usually falls more on the controller side when it comes to how bills are paid, how, you know, all those those things like that. It's their responsibility to maximize, you know, what the company has when it comes to those types of things. Their role, you know, put simply is probably more of that gatekeeper than most people, you know, which is to make sure as much money as possible comes in and as little as possible goes out. (laughs) Keep the bathtub full. <laughs> exactly, but you know, when it comes to you know, they should have a better sense of where the profitability of the company is. Yeah, you know, how certain things actually flow through that organization. Cash flow management usually should fall on the controller level. You know, what we've very often seen is that those get mixed up with the bookkeeper or the, or somebody who is a controller ends up in a CFO's seat, and that's where things start to get a little bit different than break down a little bit. Yeah. Because they'll have certain information or certain perspectives on how certain things are supposed to happen, but the CFO stepping into that role and it a bit or two, the CFO's value is really at the strategic level. Got it. Very often they may step down to the controller level to help with certain things, but you very rarely see a good a controller step up moving with the strategic. We have seen a few and they're really, it's really great when you do see them, you come across them, but it is difficult and that's why the lines are usually a little bit drawn around that. So that controller level is more, put simply, is probably that gatekeeper. It's probably the best way to define that responsibility in a growing organization. You know, cost savings, so, you know, those types of things like that. Those will typically fall under the controller's
1: level. Yeah. So then, let's talk about the CFO role and when, kind of, what it entails. When a company typically needs to consider, you know, some some level of a CFO role, either you know, fractional outsourced or internal. And what does that CFO do? Who do they work with? What are, What are the goals of having a CFO, a good CFO, in place? Sure. So more broadly speaking, that role of that TFO is, as I mentioned, on, at the strategic
0: level. And that'll come across in a few different key areas. That's when it comes to developing goals and strategy for the organization as a whole and helping map out the activities to help you achieve it. For instance, we worked with a company where, you know, they had grown very successfully. They're now, you know, what we started talking to them I was like, okay, great. Where are we trying to go now? And it was adding a certain number to top line revenue over the next three years. So we, at, we worked with that company to identify what are the activities Activities that they need to do to help them achieve that. And for that particular company, it was they need to hire five salespeople over the next six months to achieve that goal of top line revenue. They had the operational throughput to handle it. We were able to assess that. We were able to go through something like that. So with that, it was helping identify those actual activities to help them achieve their goal. Yeah. And that's really where you start seeing that CFO is, for instance, if you want to add to that growth, which areas of your company are more profitable? Where should you be focusing your efforts on growth? Because just adding top on revenue sounds really good. But if it's not <laughs> contributing to your
1: growth, if it's not profitable. Not bad, revenue. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah.
0: And and we run into that absolutely a lot when it comes to making those types of decisions and firing customers that are not profitable. Yeah. We we run into that a lot. And even when there are significant portions of overall revenue, but being able to assess those costs accurately, it's yeah. not just direct costs but the indirect costs that are involved. There as well, that will allow you to take those steps to help when you achieve your goals.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And or, I think that's that information becomes crucial. I was just actually running sessions this week with a company and and we are kind of digging into who is their best customer and and who who should they go out and get more of, who's who should they sell more of. And and one of the things I asked them is, okay, well, who's your most profitable customers? And they can often do it at a, a kind of gross margin level, they can figure out, okay, well, what are the direct costs that I have with this client? But then we start asking about, well, how much time does it take, you know, of your operations folks? Like how invoicing, you know, is it a pain and do they, you know, keep sending it back and you've got to spend a lot of time, you know, coming up with new cost breakdowns and stuff like that. Like if you really start mapping your contributing operational cost, overhead costs to, you know, by client fairly quickly, some of these clients become actually not profitable. <laughs> and and you're better off just firing them. <laughs>
0: Oh, it really does. We literally had an example of that where Walmart was actually one of the customers, one of our oh, customers' yeah. clients, and they're a legacy client, and have to keep Walmart, have to keep Walmart, have to keep Walmart. at right? about 25% of their revenue. And the conversation basically came down to, yeah, as you mentioned, they're able to get their, their gross margin numbers, like, oh, this is here. It's profitable over there. I was like, sure. How much of your time? How much of these three yeah, people's exactly. time? And how much of this time are they going through it? Let's add those salaries to the equation as well. A yeah. percentage of that. And when you start putting in all of this information, Walmart just simply was not profitable. Yeah, And even though was 25% of their revenue they realized that they had to let them go in order to continue to grow and achieve their goals
1: yeah yeah well and it, and it goes back to i think one of the reasons to actually you know at least consult with a CFO you know early in your business process is making sure that your your data entry the, the information you're capturing whether it you know financial time things like that making sure that you've got it captured in such a way that you're actually able to do that analysis, you know, because if you're just dumping, of dumping all of your expenses into a general expense category, when really they probably need to be mapped to project codes or, you know, client codes so that you can figure out really what is your net profitability on a client by client or a project by project basis. Like if you don't have that data, it's really tough to do it retroactively.
0: Absolutely. That goes back to the old adage, you know, what isn't tracked can't be measured. Yeah. We can't track the information as you need to make the decisions. There's no way you can make the decision based on that. You can't measure your results. Without it, yeah. So yeah. absolutely, we get involved in designing those systems. Uh, what would work? What wouldn't work? What you need to track? What you don't? Working with the company recently, where it's like, okay, we want to grow. We have three avenues of growth. I was like, that sounds good. Are you tracking the effect of those three different avenues inside your company currently? Yeah. No. So yeah. how do we actually measure that? So we have to come up with a way of saying, okay, these are the three channels of revenue. This is how we're going to track each one. This is how we're going to track the efforts we're putting into growing each one, and these are how we're going to track the results.
1: Yeah. And and I like that it's it's more than just the you know the checks that you write and the credit card purchases and things like that. It's it's your time. It's time that you're putting into it. I mean, because basically time is money, right? Like if you're if Absolutely. you're if you're spending time on something, that's a resource that you need to manage. And the other one I, I constantly run into is when they they kind of figure out how much time an individual is spending on an account, and they, they do it as a percentage, and they do it as 40-hour weeks. But then I talk to the person, I say, how much do you work? And they're like, oh, I typically work 55, 60-hour weeks. I'm like, okay, well, so what's going on with <laughs> 15, 20 hours? And, and they're just, they're not really capturing that there's a you're losing information around what it's really costing you and they may say well look but i pay this person's salary you know i'm not really paying for the extra time and generally i say look you're paying for it one way or another right whether you're paying for it you know in terms of the bonuses you have to give or you know if they leave and you've got to rehire somebody because you've overworked them i mean those are costs that are going to come up someday in some shape or form so you better capture it now so you really have a good accounting of what is it costing you to do these projects and work with these clients
0: absolutely and tying this Specifically to a service one we worked with, where I was working with the managing partner of a law firm. Yeah. Where I basically told them I was like, look, if we change over the way your process, internal processes work, to free up between three and four days per month for you to just get out there and sell.
1: Yeah. Right?
0: managing partner of a law firm, they're the rainmaker of the firm. Yeah. And I said, if we do that over the next six months, you know, what do you think you can generate? And he came up with a number, and it was a pretty high number because he's really, really good at what he does. Yeah. And I said, great. If we come up with these are what it will cost you in order to do that, that becomes a much clearer conversation. This is how much it costs. This is how much you think you can generate. Let's go do it, yeah. and that's really what it came down to, and he cleared his his goal within like four months of that once we actually implemented those changes on the operational level,
1: yeah. Yeah. Well, like I said, I think that's, a, you know, a good, a good strategic CFO will, will help you set up those things so you can make those decisions and, and hopefully be more profitable and, and uh, increase revenue. So talk to me a little bit about some of the other challenges you see, particularly around service-based businesses. When you're coming, you mentioned law, you know, professional services, you know, other other service-based businesses where, you know, people's time or people are a core, you know, part of the value that's delivered. What are some of the kind of challenges, mistakes, missed opportunities that you see companies when you come in and work with service-based companies?
0: So very often, we've very often seen the you know issues that pop up really comes around the quality of people that they choose to bring into their firm. Or yeah. into their organization, especially now with such a tight talent pool, that just end up settling for talent. <laughs> yeah, and it's it, you know when you're talking about that these are the people, the revenue drivers of your firm, yeah. and you have some people operating at this level and other people are, who are here, it yeah. really creates a very big problem for the continued growth of that firm. Yeah, and this is especially true when you're talking about everything is so tight these days, and the growth trajectory is here, and suddenly they hit a wall and they don't understand why, yeah. and it really comes down to a skills gap very often, where it's just everybody, you know, half the people are here and everyone else is here, yeah, you're going to hit that wall. You're going to plateau when you get to a certain level because you don't have the rest of the players up at the right level.
1: Yeah, yeah, That's
0: probably one of the most pervasive I've seen. Mm-hmm. And the answer is usually, well, we needed the person. And I'm like, I understand that. But uh, the Harvard, I believe, did that study. in One of their HBS case studies where a toxic employee has a has a more of a detrimental effect than a star employee actually oh, has. Yeah. Adding So the settling for talent is really, really one of the probably the biggest stumbling blocks I've seen many service based industries do because their people are their growth. People are. Then, what's driving their business? Yeah. and they settle for
1: talent. Well, and you and you said it. It's it typically it's a they're under the gun, right? They've sold a project, or they're working on a strategic project, and someone leaves, or they need a resource, and you know they've got to get a player on the field, and so they they make kind of a battlefield hire, you know, which you know short term, yeah, I get it, but you know a couple of months down the road, a year later they're now saddled with you know a C player in an organization the the, the one stat that i'd like and i can't remember where I'll, I'll i'll find the the source for it but the you know performance is always an issue right the productivity of C players is obviously very low but the the thing that i find being the big reason or the one that i end up uh, quoting that that really drives a lot of um, leaders in terms of making better decisions is that the number one reason A players leave a company is because they have to deal with C players. So it's not <laughs> it's not really the the C players lack of performance that's the issue. Is that if you lose if that C player in the business causes you to lose an A player. That's where the pain is. And so, Absolutely. you know, make, making those decisions, you know, first of all, make, making good hires is you know, the, the, the solution to it ultimately. But, you know, if you do end up having a C player, the real reason to take a take action sooner rather than later is that you don't want to risk losing your A players. Absolutely. You know? Well, what, one other area we
0: typically see, you know, challenges on the, is the design of certain processes within organizations yeah. end up being by default instead of by design. Like the waste <laughs> from the process is actually flow through information. It's like, well, that's the way we did it because this is where we were. And now we've grown to here. So we're just kind of evolved into that. Except you take a step back and it's like, well, this doesn't really make sense anymore. <laughs> and the best example I have of that to work for the company is to take four to six weeks to send out an invoice after they finish the project. Wow. You know what that does to a company's cash flow? Oh I mean, gosh. that's just brutal. Yeah. yeah. And it happened because basically their, their process was it had to go through six different departments in order for, before they can send it out.
1: Yeah. They've got to sign off on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then so I started looking into what. Why? Why is it complicated? So why do you need to go through six different departments? And the answer was, because they were, when they were a fraction of their size. One person had all six responsibilities. And they person used to just do it and sign off. And as the company grew, very very nicely they grew. But now you have they took the responsibilities and created this team, this responsibility goes to this team and this team and this team and this team. They only had to go all, all, all through all six of them before someone would actually kind of sign off and turn out that input. Yeah. yeah. So we, we redesigned that process to so now within five days. But that's a very typical one we've seen. Where if you're not reviewing these internal processes and procedures, it's a very big stumbling block towards well, actually that kind be growth trajectory.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm um, I'm curious about. Um, I mean, one thing that I, that I run into a lot with uh, business, certainly service based businesses, is, is kind of pricing and pricing strategy. Um, how any anything that you've seen or, or models that you've seen people take in terms of how how to figure out how to price products services uh, you know programs you know think how, how to go to kind of go from well this is what it costs me in terms of uh, the labor or the people involved versus this is what I should charge the client for any any thoughts or ideas or suggestions you can give people either in terms of figuring out really what your costs are because I think that's a challenge sometimes but also <laughs> figuring out then you know how do I actually go to a pricing model or, or what are some strategies around how to price services when it when you go to market?
0: Sure, so usually it comes down to, when it comes to the pricing strategies, I very often say, let's start with the end result. What profit do you want to make off of this type of thing? What's your net profit? And usually try and start with net instead of gross. Because there are so many factors that play into that contribution margin and those operating costs involved in, in calculating that net, yeah. that that's where you really need to start. Because we worked with companies so that were operated on a 40% gross margin. And yeah. Guess what their cost of overhead was? 40%. <laughs> so, you know, if you're not starting with the net, then your pricing isn't going to help you make any money if yeah. you're not starting with that net result. Yeah. So A lot of it comes down to, is okay, this is where you want to be at the end of it. Then so you have to kind of work backwards over here and to come up with that number. And if that number that you get to is something that none of your clients are gonna pay, then obviously there's an issue there you need to figure out that requires a little bit more deeper understanding. Yeah, Because you have to start with the numbers where you're trying to where you're trying to get to, and then work backwards from there to say, okay, this is what's acceptable, this is here. With regards to pricing structures, we have seen companies get very creative and actually create more problems than they were trying to solve when it oh, comes really? to some of their pricing structures. Yeah. I'm a big fan of simple. Keep yeah. things as absolutely simple as universal and as across the board as you can, because you're always gonna have that one person in the organization who didn't quite understand the complications of that particular pricing issue, and you're going to have to deal with that <laughs> later. So, keep things as simple as possible across the board.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, I've seen I've seen uh, projects quickly go unprofitable because someone inadvertently gave a discount on something that they shouldn't have because of you know the nature of the project. The other one I like I like that idea of kind of starting with the end in mind, I think a lot of companies kind of figure out, okay, well, they kind of price it and then they figure out what it costs and whatever's left over is profit <laughs> or loss, depending on how well yeah. they've done this. And I like that idea of, of reverse engineering of just saying, hey, look, well, what's our target? You know, are we make, trying to make 10% net, 15% net, 20% net, you know, and then figure out, okay, well, well, given that, given what our costs are, you know, where do we need to price to be able to have that in the you know in our hands at the end of the project? And then, you know, and if we can't, if we're, if we're not getting that, if we can't meet that price, well, we've got to figure out how to increase the value so we can get that price or change our expense model. Maybe we need to figure out how to lower our cost of being able to deliver that same thing to the customer. But, yeah, I think, I think too many people end up, you know, profit is just an end function rather than a target that they're thinking right. about and, and planning around.
0: It's also very much an understanding that very often needs to go into that equation is... When you're changing the price, what is the effect of changing that that number at the end? And there's very often a miscommunication between those two numbers. Oh, sure. If I just add this number over here, then this is going to go up like this. Well, is it? What else is involved in making that conversation? And that's why you need to have both, you know, both the beginning and the end in mind when you're creating your price.
1: Yeah. 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 I think the one thing that I certainly have found a lot of companies or a lot of leaders, founders, CEOs, and it happens maybe 20, 30% of the time, they're just hesitant to increase prices. And I don't. I think it's a function of they're worried about they're going to lose the sale and things like that. I, I think one thing that I've, I've found is pushing people on price as much as possible, meaning that they're typically undercharging at some level. And so... Even if it's if you can increase price by five percent even if you lose a client or two because because an increase in price drops directly to profit right assuming that all other all other expenses are the same it, it hits directly to profit you can often make up a couple of lost clients by increasing price just because you're you're adding so much profit to the bottom line for everyone else and I think a lot of people leave money on the table
0: absolutely that's almost universally from what we've seen yeah. almost universally and I'm talking about across industries across sectors you know just almost always the leaving leaving money on the table because they don't understand their pricing structure, how it affects to it, and the actual dynamics in the marketplace. To exactly your point, those slight increases in print price add so much more to the bottom line than keeping that more customers sure you understand that and understand those relationships, yeah.
1: The strategy, what's the whole revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash is king, right? Like, it's, it's really go. making sure you understand how those, those things fit together. Um, Absolutely. So I'm curious in terms of, uh, you know, companies that have, uh, you know, thought about hiring a CFO, a fractional CFO, you know, someone like you, what are the what are the things that they should be looking for, things they should keep in mind? How do they interview? How do they select a good partner? What's the process you recommend people follow, questions that they ask, uh, criteria that they use?
0: So for starters, it has to. You know, we would always recommend that there has to be someone who's actually held that level of responsibility and role in their past. Yeah. That is one of the key things we've seen. Very often, they don't because they're price conscious. They don't want to pay that much for that level of experience. Mm-hmm. Except if you put someone in that role who hasn't really done it before, you're not getting what you need very often from their value for that strategic level. Yeah. If you haven't, if that person hasn't answered to the CEO, hasn't answered to the board, hasn't had P and L responsibility in their past. And yes, they may be great, wonderful, brilliant people. Mm-hmm. It's just the level of experience that, you know, that 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 gets that title, and it's a level of experience that what you should be paying for. Yeah. Because short of that, you're just
1: not getting the value. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, I think you know, getting your, a lot of it is you're paying for the experience of having been through that process, or ideally having been through the process as a company. You know, double your size, so you actually have someone can lay out a roadmap of saying, okay, well, you're here now, twice what you're at right now looks like this, and this is the steps, and here are all the problems you're going to run into, and here's how we're going to get through them. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. So we very often seen that need come up. It's interesting. It's not a dollar amount of revenue. It's more of yeah. an evolution of a company when we see that need pop up.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. It's like a company and, dynamic, number of clients, number of people. Sure. I've yeah. seen it happen at five
0: hundred thousand in revenue and I've seen it not happen until fifty million in revenue. Yeah. Really, it depends how the company's built, how the CEO, how the management team is set up, as to when that evolution needs to happen to bring in that level of experience and expertise. Yeah. And very often they'll see these challenges come up when they hit that wall. They hit that plateau and it really just is a skills gap in in all you know, at that level yeah and so it's how you address that skills gap in the best way for the company
1: and when you start an engagement or when you start working with a company like what what does the process look like what are the what are the first things you do ongoing how do you interact how often you're meeting with them
0: as I mentioned you know we see that level of split across that support operational and strategic very often when we start with companies we actually start with the support because that's yeah. kind of our foundation you mentioned making sure the books are done and done right yeah because mm-hmm. we can't make any decisions based on that if it's not yeah so that's one of the first things we'll tend to look at is how is data captured within the organization so just to make sure that the information we're looking at is actually accurate That's also one of the ones we'll look for for making sure the risks of the company is is correctly managed when it comes to the insurance side or general business risks that they're keeping an eye on the things that are happening in their industry. That's usually where we'll start and there's also usually some type of pressing need when somebody calls us which is obviously being addressed right away or there's cash flow or internal systems and processes there's usually some type of problem going on or they're no longer profitable and they don't understand why. These are typical types of challenges when, when we get brought in which is what we start working with quickly regards to how often we, we are there working with clients, that really valued by clients. Some of them were there half a day every hour of the week. Some of them were there four days a week. It depends what's going on and what they need us to do and how we can help.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, about the CFO Center, what's the best way to get that information?
0: Sure. So our site is www.thecfocenter.com. I can be reached at nelson.pepper at thecfocenter.com
1: for any questions you may have. Great. I'll make sure that those links and your email is in the show notes here so people can click through and get that. Nelson, this has been a pleasure. I always love uh, talking strategy, particularly around finance and companies. I think it's one thing that people don't... I think people get afraid of, unfortunately. I think they don't spend enough time in. So I think we covered a lot of good stuff, a lot of good value for the audience. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Bruce. You've
0: been listening to Scaling Up Services with business coach Bruce Eckfeldt.